Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. This week's message comes from Pastor Tyson Harold, and we hope it encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Well, the state of Indiana is full of some incredible people like y'all, and then there's also some really interesting people. They're usually the ones they interview on the news. And a while back, I saw this one story about this lady in Anderson, and I just was like a moth to the flame, had to learn more about her. Her name's Linda. Linda is 68 years old, got married at the age of 16, and is now a grandmother with 23 ex-husbands. That's right, 23. She sets the world record for the most married woman here in Indiana. She said she's addicted to the romance of getting married. And for those of you that got married, uh, maybe you enjoyed that time of the ceremony, or, but apparently Linda likes it a lot. The best husband she had was Jack, who she married him three times. She had seven children by different husbands and a stepmother to many more. The strangest exchange of vows with Linda took place at the Indiana Reformatory at Pendleton to an inmate named Tom. Linda says this, he says, it's easy to sum up my life. When I was younger, I was a snot-nosed kid, but the neighborhood boys were all in love with me, and they all wanted to marry me, and I all wanted to marry them. She went on to say, I got to thinking in some of these towns in Indiana where world record holders live, they have signs outside the city limits. She goes, I think Anderson needs a sign like that. So her motives were a little off, but she goes on to say that her last marriage was a decade ago, which was actually a publicity stunt. Uh, Linda taking Glenn Wolf. Uh, was now he was the world's most married man, and he died a year later at the age of eight. Linda's been single now for 12 years, and she says, but I'd get married again because, you know, it gets lonely. And if you find yourself lonely today and single, uh, come talk to me. There's other ways to handle that. It's been years since I walked down the aisle, and I had missed it. The serial bride who now lives in a retirement home says she never cheated on her husband and said that if she had her life over again, she would never, ever, ever marry so many men. Her advice to you and to I today is just get married once and stay married. Life is not a bed of roses, believe me. And just to update, there is no sign outside Anderson, Indiana that that says that Linda lives here. And I share that story because I'm just like equally mad and dumbfounded at the same time, right? Like how could you... How could you do that, right? One was a publicity stunt. One guy was three times, and it went on to list all of them. If you get bored later, you could Google it and see. But I was like, that's like just half-hearted devotion to the idea of marriage and half-hearted devotion to a person. But I got thinking that's often how we respond, right, especially to God. We are absolutely in love with the idea of God, and we love him at the moment of salvation. But sometimes we, we really, if we're honest, we're half-heartedly devoted to God. And Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 7 that really compares and contrasts the two odds of this spectrum. And one is of half-hearted devotion, and the other is of an extravagant love. Jesus shares the story of this uh, sinful woman and this Pharisee. And in the life of the Pharisee, you see this half-hearted devotion, much like Linda, going through the routine of marriage because that's just what we do as opposed to actually loving the person. And you also see the extravagant love of this sinful woman that's displayed for us to see today to remind us that there's a difference, that we're called to live differently. And today I want to help you see that. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 36. But Luke recalls this event in Jesus' life. Luke is the only gospel writer that records this event. And up until this point in Jesus' ministry, he's often healed someone physically, 
and then said something like, go and sin no more. But this marks a shift in how Jesus deals with people. He continues to heal people physically, but from now on, he's going to address their biggest issue, which is their sin. And so this is the first time we see in Jesus' ministry where he doesn't do anything physically to help a person. He just goes after the heart of what's really wrong with them and with you and with me today. And it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, that when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. But she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever is forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, well, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus had just finished arguing with the Pharisees earlier on in chapter 7. And at the end of chapter, or midway through chapter 7, Jesus responds to their, their accusations. And he says, look, the Son of Man came to, and he's going to eat with drunkards and gluttons and sinners. And, and then he ends with this statement in verse 35 of chapter 7 that says, but wisdom is proved right by all our children. And Jesus, in essence, was telling the Pharisees that, look, if you look at how Jesus is living, you're going to see the byproduct of what he's called them to do. If you look at how Jesus is living, you're going to see the byproduct of how he's living, right? Wisdom is proved right by her children. You're going to see the right things that come out of his life. And then Luke tells this story to further illustrate the point that these people, the half-hearted devotion of the Pharisee versus the extravagant love of the sinful woman, you're going to see results by how they live. And so in verse 36, it says, when one of the Pharisees has invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now the Pharisee was either interested in Jesus or he was seeking to trap Jesus, which I think is what he was trying to do. He invited Jesus into his house and it says that they reclined, Jesus reclined at the table with them. Now in this culture, it's dry, it's hot, it's arid, it's dusty, and they didn't have chairs like you and I do. And so the tables were low to the ground with couch cushions and blankets, and they would lean at the table with their feet to the back because their feet had been all over the road and everything else that's in the road, and they would lean and they would eat at the same time. So what happens is, is Jesus and Pharisee and the other honored guest of this this table are sitting low to the ground where it's coolest. They're sitting there with their feet back, and then everybody else had kind of filed in the room around them. 
It was not uncommon as a practice if a teacher or a rabbi or someone was coming along to speak that many people would gather to hear what they had to say. And that's where we find Jesus today, and that's where we find this sinful woman, and we also see the Pharisee there as well. And in verse 37, it says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. The woman in the town had lived a sinful life. Most people believe that because her sin was so on display and everybody knew about it, that she was most likely a prostitute. But in verse 17 of chapter 7, it says that the news of Jesus had spread throughout all of Judea and that people had heard of what Jesus was doing. And so this lady hears of what Jesus offers, forgiveness. She hears about the miracles that he's done, and she's got to check it out. And so she makes her way into this Pharisee's house, albeit at the back of the house or at the back of the room, and she's standing there at the feet of Jesus. He's forward talking to everybody else, and she's just listening. And as she sits there and listens to what Jesus has to say, verse 30 says, 37 says that she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. That's pretty uncommon. You don't just carry around some extra perfume with you, although I guess sometimes we do today. But in that culture, this would have been expensive. You didn't just keep it for whatever. She made the decision. She was coming there, and she was going to honor Jesus. And so she shows up there, and in verse 38, it says, As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Um, this is strange. I get it. It is very strange. In our culture, we would never do it. We don't do feet here. Uh, their feet were completely covered in dust and mud and other things. Our, ours are just like lint and whatever else is on your feet. But this would have been strange. And this lady, as she sits here and listens to what Jesus has to say, she notices that his feet are dirty. Now, in Judean culture, in first century Judea, you would have, as soon as you entered into the room, especially if you were an honored guest, you would have been kissed on the cheek, you have been offered some sort of perfume or oil for your face and for your hair because it's so dry and hot that it, you probably stink, but also you're just dried out. Your skin needs something. And then also they would often, not only would they do that, but they would give a kiss they would also wash their feet as they had been so entirely dirty. This didn't happen for Jesus. For whatever reason, the Pharisee was interested in him, but he didn't really want to show him any true respect. And so Jesus is there. And this lady, as she listens to Jesus, and she understands what Jesus has done for her, her response as she realizes maybe it's the shame of what she's done. Maybe it's the realization that God is going to forgive her in Jesus Christ. She loses it and starts to cry looks down and notices that Jesus' feet are dirty and starts to wipe his feet with her hair. Now, one could argue that this lady is perhaps um, not a whole lot's going to make her feel shameful, but you've got you've to be willing to, to go down on your knees, to cry, to wash his feet with your hair. Your, your pride is gone at this point. It cost her an alabaster jar of perfume, which would have cost her money, which she probably didn't have. But as she did this, and remember, we're talking about the difference between the half-hearted devotion of a Pharisee and the extravagant love of this woman. You see that extravagant love comes from the overflow of our heart, not the leftovers. Right? Extravagant love comes from the overflow of this woman's heart. As she looks and sees what Jesus offers to her, her only response is, I can't do anything else. Society has put her down so far that she has no standing to, to even speak. But she does the one thing that she notices she can do. Jesus' feet are dirty. I'm going to go down and wash his feet 
and rinse them off. And we see that extravagant love, as opposed to half-hearted devotion, comes out of the overflow of our heart, not the leftovers. How many of you enjoy leftovers? Are there any leftover fans here? Sweet. That's like slightly more in the first service. Seven people. I have been trying to learn to like leftovers probably since I was a kid, but definitely in the 17 years that I've been married, I've been really working on it. Now, there's one thing that's better left over, and that's soup. It's always better the second time. I don't care what you say. But uh, last week, when it was snowing, or two weeks ago, Shelly made chicken pot pie, and I thought, I'll try this. It, it was really good the first time. Maybe it'll be really good the second time. I opened it up, and all the juices had, like, sucked back into the crust. There was, like, a couple pieces of chicken and some colored things that used to be vegetables. I looked at it and was like, tossed it, right? Here's what happens. This lady... She has such a love and respect for what Jesus did that it's an overflow of what's happening on here. Sometimes what we do with God is we want to give him the leftovers. We want to give him, you know, the extra five minutes at the end of the day or the first five minutes of the day. And then it's kind of like, okay, I did my thing with God. That's the leftovers. And I don't have time for this. But this lady was so moved by what Jesus had done. She cared so much for the forgiveness that he offered that extravagant love came out of the overflow of who she was. It just flowed out of her freely. And we see the difference between extravagant love and half-hearted devotion. One of them is, is that extravagant love comes from the overflow of our hearts, not the leftovers. This event cost this lady. She had to figure out where Jesus was. She had to make her way into the house. She had to buy some perfume. She had to humble herself to get down and take care of Jesus' feet. She put her pride down, and we find that extravagant love not only comes from the overflow of her heart, but it also comes at a cost. And so this lady, as she continues to do this, the verse 39 says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The Pharisee, either thinking under his, or talking under his breath or just thinking in his own head, he says, wait a minute, Jesus, if you're a prophet, if you're, so, if you're son of man, then you would know the kind of person that's touching you. She's a prostitute. And you would push yourself away from her. But I love that Jesus gives us the example of what he thinks about people. That he doesn't see the sin as much as he sees the person and he knows their heart. He does see the sin and recognizes it. But he tells him, if this man were a prophet, you would know who's touching you, that she is a sinner. You see, half-hearted devotion looks at everyone else's sin and neglects their own. And the Pharisees were masters of this. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus spent a, a majority of his time saying. You've set up these high marks for everybody else, but you yourselves don't follow them. And so the Pharisee is questioning Jesus, whether he's really a prophet or not. And in the midst of it, instead of dealing with himself or instead of dealing with the lack of respect he showed Jesus as he entered the house, he goes, that woman, she's a sinner. And that's all he could see her as. You see, that's what happens when we're half-hearted devoted to Jesus, is that we look to everybody else as opposed to ourselves, because that's easier. Because it's easier for me to say that person doesn't have it together, so I make myself feel better. But when we live out of an extravagant love, we'll, we'll see our own sin. As a culture, we've been desensitized to sin, especially our own. I love the book. Um, it's called The Imperfect Disciple by Jared Wilson. And I love the tagline, grace for people who can't seem to get their act together. And that, that's me. And I'm assuming it's some of you as well. But in that book, he has this to say. It's not that we're disinterested in Jesus or the seriousness of our sin. 
but all our other interests have dulled our spiritual senses. I think for many of us, we're not like, you know what, I don't have time for Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. No, we realize that we've got a conflict in our lives where we've elevated the created things above the creator. He's given us so many blessings anymore that we can't even see the difference between the great blessings that he's given us and the giver of those blessings. And so we find ourselves, not that we don't care about Jesus, not that we don't recognize that we're sinners, but all these bright and shiny things have so dulled us and distracted us that we can't even see what God sees. The Pharisee had the same problem. He doesn't see what Jesus sees in the great extravagance of her love. He sees her sin. And it wasn't in a way to help this woman. It was in a way to condemn this woman. And so half-hearted devotion looks so entirely different from extravagant love that Jesus tells him, and I love this, that Jesus knows this man's heart. And he knows your heart. And you know that he knew that woman's heart that day as well. Because it says in verse 40 that Jesus answered him, even though he wasn't speaking, Simon, I have something to tell you. He says, tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both of them. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus replied, you have judged correctly. A denarii was about a day's wage, and so Jesus tells this parable to help illustrate the point that both people need forgiveness. Whether it was a little bit or a lot, they both need forgiveness. And as he tells this story, it's an incredible reminder of what Jesus has done for you and for me. That we all need forgiveness, that these, both of these people not only needed forgiveness, but they also couldn't pay back the debt, which is the story of you and me as well. You can't work your way to be right with God. You can't be nice enough to be right with God. You can't do enough good things to be right with God. And just as that's the case, Jesus tells the parable and he says, neither of these guys could pay back the debt. Both of them had a debt. One was here and one was here, but they both were forgiven, previewing what Jesus was going to do later in life. And then Jesus turns towards the woman and says to Simon, I love this. He looks at the woman as if to remind her of his love for her but he's speaking to Simon over here. And Jesus had a way of doing this with all kinds of people, right? When, when they, everybody was picking on the kids, what did Jesus do? He went and set a kid on his lap. When people were after the outcast of the town, what did Jesus do? He'd go to the outcast and then speak to the people. He often did this where he's having a conversation with these people, but looking towards the people who needed the reminders of God's love the most. And he says this, do you see this woman? I came into your house. She did not give me any water for my feet, but she, or you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. He turns to the woman and says this to Simon, and the difference between the Pharisee and the woman is the Pharisee invited him into his home. The Pharisee even called him teacher. But the Pharisee couldn't see Jesus for who he really was. That's the problem with half-hearted devotion, is you can't see God the way that he truly is. But when you live out of an extravagant love and you recognize that you've been forgiven for everything, it changes the way you see the Lord. And Jesus confronts this Pharisee and says, look, you, you didn't do any of this, but this lady has, from the time I've got here, she's been doing this, all of these things. 
The Pharisee might have been inclined to respect Jesus slightly, but he didn't see him for who he really is. And then Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. You see, extravagant love will not lead to forgiveness, but forgiveness will lead to extravagant love. Meaning, you can't work your way. It's not about what the woman did in response to being right with God. But because she was right with God, she did these things to show her love for Jesus. So extravagant love is not going to leave you to forgiveness. You can't say, well, I love God, and that, way, that means we're good. That's not enough, right? But forgiveness will lead to an extravagant love. If you've been forgiven for Jesus, whether it's 50 versions or 500 versions of whatever unit of measure you want to use, we've all been forgiven. So the difference is, is our level of love, and then Jesus takes it a step further in verse 48 and says, or whoever, in verse 47, and says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. When we truly understand forgiveness, our response will be love, devotion, and worship. Because extravagant love will not lead to forgiveness, but forgiveness will lead to extravagant love. When I was in college, I'll never forget the first day I went to college, and um, I had no idea what to expect. And there was this guy named Tom running back and forth down the hallway in our dorm. And I was like, what is his deal? He looked a lot older, too. I didn't really understand it at the time. He was 25. I think he was 25. And um, God had saved him from a cocaine addiction. I mean, he just had, like, every time you sat and talked with him, it was like something else that happened. And I remember we were sitting there one day going uh, hall devotions through this part of the Bible. And Tom told us, he was like, you guys realize I understand salvation better than you do. And I was kind of offended by that. Like, what do you mean you understand salvation better than I do? He goes, in a physical sense, I've been delivered from the addiction of cocaine. And I see it as a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for my sin. And so he's like, and Tom couldn't get through any of this without crying all the time. He would wake up every day and come in and he'd be like, you guys know God is good. And we're like, yeah, God's good, Tom. We got it. He'd be like, no, seriously, he really is. And for the first time in my life, I realized that, look, I had been forgiven just like Tom had been forgiven. But there was a lack of love in my life that, that didn't, didn't measure up because whoever had been forgiven little loves little and whoever's been forgiven much loves much, Jesus said. And as Tom, as he taught me more that year about what it means to love Jesus, it radically transformed. He was right. He knew more about salvation than I did. Not in an in a, in a academic sense, but it had seeded so deeply down inside of him that he loved in such an extravagant way that I found myself as crazy as time was and his brain had been messed up because of the drugs and so he didn't always make the best decisions, but he loved Jesus. And it was such a conviction for me and I hope it's a conviction for you that we wouldn't be the kind of half-hearted, devoted people, that we'd be the people who show extravagant love because we've been forgiven. Whether it's a little or a lot, we've been forgiven. And so therefore, we're called to love Jesus in an extravagant way. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven in verse 48. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? You see, the Jewish people who were sitting there that day realized the difficulty of having your sins forgiven. For them, in order to have their sins forgiven, they had to go out and do something. So I made a bad decision, did something wrong. In their, in their culture, they had to go and atone for that. That would have been a decision where they had to go out and do something. And for the first time, Jesus comes in and he goes, I'm going to take care of it. Your sins are forgiven. And these people are sitting there looking at each other like, who is this guy? 
You can't forgive sins. It requires sacrifice, and it requires the ritual, and it requires the, the spilling of blood. You can't do that. And so you can see that Jesus is starting to work in their lives. And if you read chapter 8, you'll see where they continue to, this just continues to play out, where Jesus shows them that you can be forgiven. And so they're puzzled by this, and they wonder again, well, how on earth could this happen? They begin to say among themselves, well, who is this that even forgives sin? Well, the difference, Jesus said to the woman, is that your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And we learn that the, the way in which we have a right relationship with God, the way in which we have the right standing before God is our faith in Jesus. And this woman realized it. She came to the place in her life where she understood what Jesus had done, and she responded in extravagant love. I want to show you this chart behind me. It's super helpful for my life, hopefully for yours as well. But there's time, and at some point in your life, you've got to decide what to do with Jesus. Are you going to place your faith and trust with him, or are you going to trust in your own abilities? And if you're trusting in your own abilities, that's not faith. That's not a relationship with Jesus. That's, at best, half-hearted devotion. But there should be a time where, hopefully, you've come to the place where you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you put your faith and trust in what he did on the cross, that he took your place and paid for your sins and that he was raised from the dead and that he is Lord of your life. And if you haven't done that today, I would encourage you to do that today. Put that stake in the ground right now. Put your faith and trust in him as opposed to yourself. But from that point on, as you understand God's holiness and you understand your sinfulness, there should be a growing love for God. And if you've been following God for five years and you don't love him any more than you did five years ago, you might need to go back and evaluate whether you really decided to follow Jesus. And I'm not saying that as a way of condemnation. I'm saying that as a way of confirmation for you to understand that if you love God and I love God, will we get this perfect? Absolutely not. But there's got to be a growing part of that we start to love him more and start to respond in a way. And if you're struggling with that right now today, then, then you got to go back and ask yourself the hard question, of, am I really following Jesus? If you're not, I want to help you with that today. I want to give you such assurance of that today that, that not because you're great, not because I'm great, but because Jesus Christ is great. And if you do, this will not be a perfect straight linear line. It'll look more like an echogram on, a, on something on a, a, a screen because it, it'll go up and down. But hopefully you can say, wow, I love God more because I realize how good he is. I realize how bad I am. And that love starts to grow. For that woman that day, in spite of all the ways that she lived, she realized he's done so much for me. And I pray that that's the marker of your life and my life. Jesus says in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It was all about her faith in Jesus. It's all about, in the Old Testament, Abraham was, was credited to him as righteousness because of his faith. In the New Testament, it's all about their faith. And Paul would go on in Ephesians chapter 2 to say it this way. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And you may have walked an aisle, you may have prayed a prayer, you may have got wet being baptized, but if it's all trusting in you and not trusting in Jesus, you just got wet, you just walked, or you just bowed your head. 
And so only you know the answer to that question. But if you haven't done that today, I would encourage you to admit that you have a problem. It's your sin. To believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to that sin and to confess him as Lord. And if he's Lord, that means you can't be. And so as you struggle with this, because I had to struggle with it all week before I came and talked to you about it. Am I half-hearted devoted or am I living in extravagant love? And if you are in the half-hearted devoted camp, which is where I spent most of the week, can I just encourage you that there's grace there too? And if you're in the extravagant love camp, man, just keep going. But if you're in neither one of those, you've got to decide what are you going to do with Jesus. And I would love to talk to you today about how you can know for sure that you uh, can have a relationship with Jesus. It's all about what Jesus did for us and our faith trusting that. Turns out when you go to the beach, there's three types of people. There's the people who sit on the beach and they just enjoy the sun and they look at the ocean. And that's boring to me. There's the people who go to the beach and they put their toes in, in the water and they only get up about ankle high. And then there's the people, and you've seen them from time to time, that just run headlong into the beach and just cannonball straight in. It turns out that's what God is wanting for you and for me. Not in a kind of sit back and just go, oh, look at the water and look how cool it is and look how great it is. And not in the chance that we would be just inching our way into God's love, grace, and mercy, but that we'd be the kind of people like a kid running into the water that would just come and cannonball into the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. And if you'll see yourself in that way, it'll change the way you live. You won't stay selfish and, and in your own interests, but you'll love and serve Jesus not only when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient. You'll love and serve Jesus when it's easy and when it's hard. You'll love and serve Jesus when it makes sense and when it doesn't make sense. Because you trust Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven so much, so our only response can be gratitude and appreciation. As they asked Linda, Linda, what, what's, what's going on in your life? And she, I love her at the end. She said, you know what I wish I would have done? I wish I would have got married one time and stayed with one man. I think for us, if we would realize that God is calling us to follow him with radical devotion, extravagant love, not half-hearted devotion. And when David came along later and he said, look, um, or came along earlier, and he said, you know, that we would not have a divided heart, he knew this was going to be an issue. He recognized that we all have those problems. And so what I thought would be helpful today is just to give us a few minutes. If you find yourself half-hearted, devoted to Jesus, that, man, you'd fix that today. Just you can tell him right now, I am sorry. You can say, help me to figure this out. Um, and so we just want to close our services today. We're just giving you a few moments to pray. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to help you afterwards, or you can tell God right here and now in the seat where you're at that today I'm going to mark that stake in the ground. And if you find yourself loving extravagantly like that woman, I would encourage you to keep doing that. It will rarely make sense, but it will be incredibly worth it. And more than that, God will get the glory for what we say and do in the weeks to come. Let me pray, and then I'll give you a few moments just to pray yourself. God, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us today to look into your word and see the difference between half-hearted devotion and extravagant love. God, help us to be like that woman in the sense that we see what you've done for us and we respond with love and service to you. Help us not to be like the Pharisee who sees you, acknowledges you, but 
chooses to look at the other things of the world. God, this can be so difficult and so frustrating. We know that we can't do it apart on our own power. And so we're asking today that you would come and give us your power. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would make these decisions today. And that, God, we would move forward from here. God, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.